Hi everybody, Adrian here. I just want to apologise for some of the sound quality in the upcoming episode. It's not that bad, but some of this was recorded over Zoom and you know by now, all of you, what that's like. So uh, apologies for some of the little glitches, but hopefully it's not too much to distract from your enjoyment. I also keep forgetting to mention that our music, based on the Edgar Wallace theme, was created by my son Oscar. So thanks Oscar, here it is. I write about uh, British film and I also occasionally uh, write for uh, DVD distributors uh, for releases of Blu-rays and DVDs of older films which have been forgotten, which aren't as well known, which are getting kind of re-releases. This week we are talking about the 1975 sex comedy Eskimo Nell, but before we get into that I would like to introduce my co-host. Hello. Uh, Yes, hi. So yeah, my name is Adrian Smith. Um, I was going to say there, though, Laurie, we can also see you, can't we, talking about Hammer films in various short Hammer documentaries. Yeah, I thought I'd repress that because I don't like seeing myself on on camera. But yeah, that's true. Um, Yeah. So I, as well as being an academic, I start my my kind of film career, I suppose, if you want to call it that, was in writing for Cinema Retro magazine. Um, I started writing for them a long time ago. But the very first thing I did was for Hammer, was about Hammer. And then I also very unsuccessfully interviewed Mickey Rooney for Cinema Retro magazine. Maybe I'll tell my Ricky, Mickey Rooney story another time. But um, so I've been writing about film for a long time. And, you have a lot of stories, don't you? You've interviewed a lot yeah. of people. Like you must have anecdotes tucked away, um, yeah. a lot of off the record stuff that's never made it into <laughs> any of the, the publications, the fanzines, the blogs. <sighs> yeah. Probably. I used to go to a lot of places and try and meet famous people. And oh, I used to do that as a, as a fan yeah. of various things. Um, yeah. Doctor Who was one of them. So I did meet Katie Manning, actually. Uh, oh, hey, if only you could have talked to her about Eskimo now. Could have, if I'd known it existed at the time. <laughs> this yeah. was about 10 years ago at a Doctor Who convention. Uh, but yeah, that was that was interesting. Got to meet a lot of a lot of people who'd starred in Doctor Who over the years, which is pretty mm. much the whole range of British actors ever that have ever yeah, existed. So <laughs> Everyone's been in Doctor Who. I think it's quite fun if you can go to things like that and talk to the people about something that they're not there to represent. Like I I once saw Dave Prowse at um, a Star Wars thing. I think talk to him about Frankenstein and the monster from hell. And he was so pleased. He he wanted to talk about Peter Cushing and Hammer and how much of, you know, all that stuff. Because he, yeah, he loved it in Vampire Circus. He was really pleased to not talk about Star Wars for five minutes. So, yeah, you never know. No, you can totally imagine that, though, if that's what yeah. you're 
if that's what people associate you with like katie manning i guess is associated with doctor who all the time so maybe if i see yeah. her again i would uh yeah katie loved you in eskimo now well and at least she's one of the few people who keeps her clothes on so there yeah one of the very few people who keeps her clothes on yeah anyway yeah so today i chose today's film which is eskimo now and i was worried about bringing this into the podcast i was worried about what laura would think of it i'm worried about developing a reputation well, yeah, I'm also worried about my reputation as a sexploitation academic, which I'm really not. But I just accidentally wrote about it quite a lot. But, you um, accidentally became a sexploitation academic. Yeah, but I just think this is genuinely a very good film. The fact that there's naked people in it is neither no, here nor there. No, it's totally incidental. It's totally incidental. Um, <laughs> and it's not even trying to be sexy. We'll probably cover this a bit later. Um, cover this. That's yes. almost a double entendre, but not quite. Almost, no. yes. I'm so terrible at double entendres. <laughs> Before we get to today's film, I wanted to thank uh, everybody who has subscribed already and um, given us some feedback online. We have actually had an email, which is very exciting. Um, if you want to email us, you can contact us on secondfeaturespod at gmail.com. Somebody uh, called Darren um, contacted us after hearing our first episode. And I just thought I would share some of that with us. He said... First of all, and now don't, don't take this the wrong way, but he says, I have a couple of pedantic niggles. Um, yeah, to get those out of the way. First of all, we referred to the man in um, Deathline as Frankenstein and not Frankenstein's monster. So that's a classic, but that's easily done, I think. Um, and also, I think I said that Christopher Lee went to Hollywood to film The Man with the Golden Gun. Where, of course, The Man with the Golden Gun was filmed in Pinewood and mainly Thailand, I think. So, <laughs> so fair point. I uh, I take that. But he also told us that he enjoyed the first episode and we'll be checking in again. He said, I like the comparison with the class system. And it brought to mind the underground vaults in Edinburgh, where the lower classes lived and worked literally underground, while the middle class shopped at the latest boutiques in the newly built shopping areas. So uh, that is interesting. He said... Um, he says, looking forward to listening to more of us sharing our enthusiasm and interest. So he's also mentioned Wick the Wicker Man being a second feature to Don't Look Now. So I think we definitely need to have the Wicker Man on our list. But thank you. Thank you, Darren. And if anyone else wants to get in touch, send us some feedback. You can also find us on Twitter. I'm at Retro Ramblings. And I'm at Laura Jane Main. And the, the, all the detail, all the contact details and how you can subscribe and find us at all the different places are all in the show notes and later in the podcast we're going to talk to professor sue harper she's emeritus professor at the university of portsmouth and uh, has done a long study and written many books on british cinema and uh, a focus on british cinema in the 1970s so we'll be hearing what she has to say about eskimo now a film which i believe she has called a masterpiece cue the music Since the turn of the century, the motion picture industry has brought to the screen most of the great classics from the annals of world literature. Little Women, Rebecca, Anna Karenina, Pollyanna, Jane Eyre, Lorna Doom, Eskimo Nell. Eskimo Nell? <laughs>
this month we are looking at the forgotten genre of the 76 film and the film under discussion this week is Eskimo Nell which was uh, it's a film from 1975 which was directed by Martin Campbell uh, you probably have seen Martin Campbell's work he's directed things like Casino Royale not the 1967 version, which is what I assumed when I heard that Martin Campbell had directed Eskimo Nell. No, it's it's the Daniel Craig version, because the interesting thing about Martin Campbell is that he's, uh, after working in sex comedies, he moved into uh, directing James Bond films. He actually directed Goldeneye. Um, and since then, he's directed all kinds of really interesting mainstream Hollywood stuff. So... Uh, we got quite an inf yeah we got quite a, an unusual director here with quite a you know a broad sort of career that's taken him from low budget sex comedies all the way up to kind of mainstream Hollywood pictures. Escamonel is quite an interesting film because not only is it a sex film of the variety that you know in British cinema it was quite popular in the seventies it was seen as something that got um, bums on seats. Excuse, I, I'm not very good at puns or double entendres. I'm just, I'm just not going to do double entendres. That won't be the first time. That won't be the first time you, that the uh, word bum comes into the no, podcast. You can do the double entendres, Adrian. Um, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> the innuendos. Ooh, matron. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, no. of that variety, but really interesting because it's a kind of film within a film. It's a sort of satire of the industry and a really ironic take on. Um, you know, British cinema and British sex films. So it's actually trying to be quite clever. It's about this group of film students who decide to make their first film. And the producer they get involved with is just really sort of um, a dodgy fella who, who you know, ends up put, getting the budget together, but then, you know, running off with it. And these students are left um, trying to work out how to, how to make uh, various different versions of the same film to please all of their backers. Uh, one of their backers is like a moral purity campaigner of basically kind of a parody of Mary Whitehouse. And one of the backers is a pornographer who just basically wants the students to shoot a porn film. So they do, you know, they do three different versions of this film, Eskimo Nell. Eskimo Nell is based on a, um, a body poem, which uh, nobody really knows where it originated from, but it is incredibly filthy. I'll tell you, you see, Eskimo Nell was a famous dirty poem. It's all about this bird and these two fellas, Dead-Eyed Dick and Mexican Pete. Well, whatever they do, they can't satisfy her, see? They try everything. They get up to everything. Well, I mean, there's one point where he gets his rifle and... <laughs> where is it? Where is it? Let's see. Here we are. Here we are. But Mexican Pete, he jumped to his feet to avenge his pole's affront. His long-nosed colt with a jarring jolt. He drove right up a... <laughs> Benny, you, Murdoch speaking. Yeah, so 70s sex comedies. Um, not you, not my sort of a... These aren't not a genre I've spent a long time with in terms of sort of my research on British cinema. But you, Adrian, you have, haven't you? Like, this is more like your area of expertise, um, academic. It's kind, kind of by accident. Um, I mean, I don't watch these films for fun, honest. <laughs> there's not, because there's not that much fun to be found in them. I mean, this one, this one is the best of the bunch, but um, the the sex film in general is pretty dreary. Um, but they do often have very interesting stories around the production of them, or even just what you're seeing on screen is a great snapshot of this kind of sleazy, low budget world of the sixties and seventies. Um, so I have ended up, yeah, I have ended up talking about these films a lot particularly when I was doing my PhD studies, I was looking at particular 
distributors and most of them did dabble in this kind of area so inevitably i ended up writing about some of those films as well um all the way up to i ended up writing about emmanuel as well which is the most pretentious film of all time but yeah so i but i was mainly looking at the distribution and who was behind these films rather than any kind of analytical or kind of appreciative look at, at the movies but um but Eskimo Nell is different. It stands out uh, from all the rest, so to speak. Yeah, it really is. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess if you're looking at any British distributors who weren't, you know, the big ones in the 60s, and there's only like two or three, um, you're going to be looking at production companies that make sex films because like, mm-hmm. especially in the early 70s, that was seen to be something that was really profitable. Um, and, you know, people love the carry-on films. They started in the late 50s. And when the carry-on films started, they were like lampoons of, of British institutions like, you know, the NHS or the army. But then as we get into the early 70s, we see the carry-on films getting properly, like not almost softcore, but really much more dirty. And more, more sort of um, kind of explicit, right? Because this was, they're kind of like a barometer for what was happening in British cinema, the carry-on films almost. Yeah, and definitely less funny. Like a lot um, less funny, yeah. I mean, carry-on England and carry-on Emmanuel are truly awful. They're like, they're like stains on the British film industry. <laughs> That's really saying something. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the funny thing about, um, about carry-on Emmanuel is that most of the nudity is provided by Kenneth Williams. Oh, God. Which is just like a bizarre choice. <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's particularly uncomfortable to watch. Mm, yeah, yeah, I can imagine. I, I really kind of like to carry on at your convenience. Is it the one about the toilets, right? Carry on mm-hmm. at your convenience? Yeah. Um, where it's See, when, in, when the joke just... When the jokes were double entendre and just puns, that's you can just about get away with it but it's when it stops being puns and they're actually talking about sex that it stops being funny yeah because carry on is about that play on you know that innuendo and play on words because it's it originates from that kind of seaside postcard british Mm. humor so like there was this great quote that i read from penelope gilliatt who uh, is a critic who was writing about cinema around about this time and she said the whole premise of all the carry on films hinges around the fact that if you say the word bum the world will end um, so you can't come out and say this stuff <laughs> it's all about the mm-hmm. innuendo um, yeah. so yeah when when sex comedy and softcore starts to become a, you know allowed and <clears throat> fine in the cinema of the 70s carry on tries to keep up and obviously it's just like yeah you're, you're kind of exposing the ley lines of what this humor actually is and it's just not funny mm. yeah I mean it's, it's similar in, in what happened with the um, the windmill theater when they were they were dying off in the early 60s because strip clubs were legal now and so you could go to strip clubs and see get the real deal or you could sit in the windmill club and get like a two-hour variety show with poor comedians and girls dancing with feathers and the windmill club just couldn't keep up and eventually had to be sold off they just closed um and it's kind of similar with comparing the carry-ons with something like the uh, confessions films like once once you could just talk about sex and have full nudity the carry-on films were just left behind because all of their cast were in their 50s and it was just a different generation they just couldn't 
couldn't keep up with what was suddenly fashionable, even though, for the most part, the new firms were all terrible. Um, and it's not it's not erotic, is it? Because uh, I watched uh, Escamonel with my partner, who's had this, who kind of, I think probably one of the best reviews I've heard of it. He said, no matter how naked anyone see anyone looks, it almost it always looks like they're wearing socks. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> there's just a yeah. kind of um, I don't know what the word is. Just a, a, a it's not even seedy. It's just kind of a bit sad. Yeah, and there's there's a there's half a cup of tea with a fag floating in the top just off the uh, just off screen. <laughs> yeah, it's all all a bit grim. It's because of, yeah, the way that these shot, the shots are set up in some of these sex films, it's like, it's reaction shot of the guy going, oh, for, and then, mm-hmm. you know, sex is happening. But it's just, it's kind of like, you're not getting like reaction shots of the woman. You're not getting um, a sense that this is a, a dialogue between the people having sex. It's just like, plonk the camera in the corner of the room, have a bunch of writhing bodies. And it's... Even in Eskimo now, the set, the kind of settings of the rooms, they're quite cold and bare as well. Like you, mm-hmm. it, it just looks really cold. Like all the naked yeah. people just look really cold. I know. I feel bad for them. <laughs> I feel really bad for them. So yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's uh, it's not erotic. So I, I'm always wondering, kind of, what was the point of these '70s sex sex films if they weren't erotic, eroticized? Like, well, the British, I mean, you know, traditionally have always been very embarrassed to talk about anything like this. I mean, I'm fe- I'm squirming in my seat now. Sex, sex, as, sex, 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 as sex, we discuss sex, it. sex, sex, bum. Um, <laughs> um, but obviously what Michael Armstrong wanted to do, because he wasn't interested in writing British sex films, but he'd he'd helped out Martin Campbell on The Sex Thief. That was the film that Martin Campbell did before this one. <laughs> Um, and that's a comedy as well. And when Stanley Long saw that, he realised that it was possible to to kind of tick all the boxes for what the punters wanted from a sex film, uh, what they you know who they were calling the Raincoat Brigade. He could tick all the boxes, but still also make it funny, because um, you know I think this is before, if I'm right, I think this is before the first Confessions film came out, but I I can't remember. It was maybe around the same time. So Michael Armstrong, you know, had helped to create the sex comedy with The Sex Thief. And then when Stanley Long said he wanted to do a a film called Eskimo Nell, he wanted to do it based on the poem, just like you see in the film. And then he sends the writer and the director away and says, write me a script over the weekend. And that's what happened to Michael Armstrong. And he's thinking, how can I make a film about this poem? It's, you know, it's it would just get banned. It's so filthy. Um, but that's when that's when Michael Armstrong realised that what he needed to do was make a film about how ridiculous it is to make a film based on Eskimo Nell. It all becomes he's writing the film about making the film that he's making. It's all very meta, I suppose, if that's the right word. And recursive, <laughs> and it, like it's it's such a film student film, but not in a bad way. Yeah, like it's these these it's clearly a bunch of young filmmakers going off into the industry and then just thinking, you know, what what is this? Mm-hmm. Uh, they're walking into the British film industry in the 1970s. There's no money. The Americans already buggered off about five years ago. And yeah. um, we've got a bunch of uh, companies, even the respectable companies producing kind of um, low budget horror films and kind of sex films and comedies. Mm-hmm. And it's it's kind of like a, 
you know, Sue might disagree with me later when we have her on, but it's kind of a barren landscape culturally. Mm. Uh, and yeah. obviously they just want to make, uh, they've got pretensions, they've got, they've got, uh, you know, dreams. Yeah. Um, dreams so it's, ideals. Yeah, it's kind of like a dissection of um, their reactions to finding out what f- the film industry was in like mm. 1975. And of course, the, sorry, Adrian. No, I was just going to say it's very much reflecting Michael Armstrong's own experience because he'd already directed two films by this point and had very bad experiences with both of them and had decided he was never going to direct again and he was only going to write. And so he's, um, the Eskimo Nell in part is based on his experiences with Tygon making Haunted House of Horror and Benny, Benny New Murdoch is Tony Tenser. Yeah, um, so, I mean, that's really, the fact that this, the, he, okay, so it's his third film, um, but uh, he's he's satirizing the establishment, but having characters in his film that are based on real people that might actually want to employ him in the future. So uh, he's really cutting well, they, off. He's really burning his bridges here, as he knows. Yeah, well, Stanley, Stanley Long had to get the lawyers involved because they were worried they might get sued because the people that they were satirizing were not that thinly veiled. It was pretty no, easy to not. tell. It's really pretty, easy to if tell. You were work, <laughs> if you worked on Wardour Street in those days, you knew exactly who all of those people were. Uh, so, so, yeah, he... Um, um, it was brave. He's in the film as well, the writer. Michael Armstrong is our main character, isn't he? Yes, so he's, he plays the director. Originally, the screenplay was based on the experiences of the writer because he wanted to show how badly writers are treated. And the writer in the film is played by um, Christopher Timothy, who I think is great as well. Very funny. But um, So originally, the film was going to focus on him, but because of the low budget and because of reshoots and availability, they ended up having to change the focus of the film a little bit so that the main focus was the director. But that was just because Michael Armstrong was already being paid to write the film and to be involved. So it was easy to get him to come and do a few more reshoots and shoot a few extra bits to uh, like the whole um, the whole thing with the song over the opening when you see Michael Armstrong go to all those different film companies in Soho and he walks in all enthusiastic and then comes out looking dejected. All of that sort of stuff. They could do that all quite cheaply. So originally it was supposed to be how bad it was for writers. And Michael Armstrong's character was supposed to be a secondary character. But ultimately he becomes a lot more involved just because of the the nature of the the budget that they were working with. But um, I do love that opening sequence because, again, they didn't have permission to go in those buildings. No, I figured that when I saw it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He's just walking into the lobby of like United Artists or whoever it Columbia. was. Columbia. He walks into the lobby whilst, of Columbia. Yeah. And they're just, they're outside with the camera. And he told me that he just walked in and had to just have a chat with the receptionist and leave a suit, you know, wait a suitable amount of time and then walk out again. So they, they didn't get permission for any oh, of that yeah, stuff. Oh, yeah, but that's like classic, fun. that's classic British B-movie filmed in Soho stuff. Yeah. That's like hanging out the back of a van, getting shots of the street because the council hasn't given you permission stuff. Like that's, yeah. that's kind of, Yeah that's part of the well-worn part of the genre Mm -hmm. um but i mean let's let's kind of unpack this because i'm already quite confused about um (laughs) just what what the hell is going on um just in the film because we have um okay so so we have the michael armstrong wrote the film but he's playing uh the director in the film the main character and um he wants to make his first film so he goes he goes to we start off on wardour street and there's this um sequence where it's there's no dialogue but there's kind of music and there's kind of like a mm-hmm. uh, plinky bluegrass music 
um, over yeah. a montage of him visiting all these film companies, and he's in War- he's in Wardour Street where all the film companies yeah. in Britain were, uh, in Soho, and he just gets rejected. I mean, like he goes to one company and gets rejected, and then ends up on Skid Row. So it's not. I feel like I feel like he he may have tried to go to like MGM or something. Yeah. <laughs> as well yeah. as you know but anyway um he he ends up in the offices of um benny Mur- benny u murdoch uh obviously that that acronym is bum because that's mm-hmm. hilarious uh and benny u murdoch is a thinly veiled uh satire of tony tenzer and tony tenzer yeah. was a producer who uh, made a lot of low-budget horror films including Michael Reeves' Witchfinder General in 1968. Mm-hmm. So Tony Tenzer was quite a, you know established figure in Wardour Street and kind of quite known for doing low-budget films. He also worked with Roman Polanski on Repulsion uh, in the mid-60s. Mm-hmm. Uh, so satire of this guy, who clearly Michael Armstrong, the writer, has worked with in the past. And mm-hmm. um, they, they try and raise money for, for, the, for their first film, and um, the director gets his friends on board. Um, he gets a writer and, you know... Uh, various people and they go to the backers but the backers want very different films so one backer is sort of again quite thinly veiled satire of mary whitehouse who wants a very a family film like a nice sort of um lovely film with no um uh, horrible themes just something the kids can watch so then they're like yeah sure we'll make that they get a third of the budget and then they go to someone else uh, the pornographer guy who's like i just want a straight up porn film He's he's based on Deke Haywood, who was the um, representative for AIP in London. So he was one of the producers on the film um, Haunted House of Horror. So Michael Armstrong had had a lot of bad experience. It was it was Deke Haywood made his one of his one of the people who made his life a misery on Haunted House of Horror. So that was yeah he's very that's why he's called Big Dick. He's uh, yeah he's Deke Haywood. And you can see all those great posters in the back of the office. Oh, film yeah. Title, I love film those. titles like Vampire Vomit and all these kind of things. So, yeah, so he's he's the AIP guy, but he wants hardcore porn, which incidentally was not legal in the UK. Nobody was making hardcore porn. There was a, there was a Scottish guy called John Lindsay who was making hardcore porn um, quietly when nobody was looking. But legally, you couldn't do it. So, but anyway, but you know, it allows Michael Armstrong to really uh, get carried away with that character. It's very funny. But that that whole conversation in there about the little gold pills, all of that stuff is stuff that people said to Michael Armstrong for real. Like the things that these people are saying are very close to what they said to him in real life. Deke Hayward, Deke Hayward was really like that. Well, that is interesting because I did I did read something about. Michael Armstrong basing the script around conversations he'd had with Tony Tenzer in meetings. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. To- Tony Tenzer, all of that stuff about um, you know, look at my muscles. You've never seen muscles like this. Go on, she loves it really. Tell him how good I am. Oh, he's very good. Yeah, that's because I'm a real man, isn't it? Oh, Benny, you're a real man. Well, I'll show you. I'll show you whether I'm a real man or not. 
Tell him what I'm like in bed. Oh, he's ever so good in bed. Yeah, that's because I keep myself fit, you see. I mean, when I really get going, I really satisfy you, don't he I? He does, he does. He really satisfies me. He's a real me. man, aren't he's I? He's very real. Can't get enough of me, can I he? can't, I can't get enough no of him. No one would call me a puffer. Nobody could call no, you a puffer. No, that's because I used to train as a weightlifter, he's isn't it? He's very fit. Virile, virile. That's he's what very I'm virile. virile. Here, I'll show you, I'll show you. Have you ever seen a body like that before? Tell me, how many men of my age have you seen with a body like that? You haven't seen many men with a body like that, have you? He's got a he's lovely body. It really turns you on. I'm a real man, aren't I? Here, here, feel that, young Harris. Feel that, feel that. That's all muscle there. Come on, have a feel of that, eh? Hey, that's all muscle. Go on, go on, feel it, go on. Have another squeeze if you like. No, thanks. All that stuff was real. Tony Tensor was like that. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's brave. Well, I think Michael realised he was never going to work with him again, so... Uh... Well, see, the thing is, the director, Martin Campbell... <laughs> went on to do all sorts of stuff, up to and including uh, Green Lantern in like 2011 and Edge mm -hmm. of Darkness and um, yeah, Goldeneye and Legend of Zorro and all kinds of stuff. So clearly he did work a lot. Mm. <laughs> so maybe, I don't know, maybe nobody really cared that this was a... But I guess that's ho that's kind of more Hollywood stuff, isn't it? Um, yeah. But also, they were, when they were making this film, they thought they were making it for the low-budget cinemas um, for the Raincoat Brigade. Like, the fact that he was writing a comedy was almost for himself because he, they thought the main audience would be the Raincoat people. But once they started to get bigger names attached in the casting, like Roy Kinnear, who was very famous, um, and Katie Manning, who was, who was in Doctor... She was in Doctor Who at the time, and Christopher Biggins, of course... Um, once they started to get bigger names on board, this turned from a very low-budget B-film to a medium, kind of medium uh, B-film, but with national exposure and press screenings, and it became a much bigger film than anyone anticipated that it would be. Um, so perhaps, yeah, burning those bridges, they didn't worry so much about that when they were making it, but it was only afterwards that it became perhaps a bigger problem. But you know they all survived it yeah and i mean katie manning was so well known at this time mm. but she 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 was she was she just finished being doctor who's companion in i shouldn't say doctor who i'm actually a doctor who fan that's wrong but <laughs> she'd finished <laughs> being john pertwee's companion in uh, 1973 i think okay and esco manel was her second film mm. um but she yeah, quite a, a household name uh mm. quite well known so again, you, you get the sense that this this is a film, like you said, for for niche limited audiences that just has snowballed into something mm. that everyone is going to see. Yeah, and Michael, because Michael Armstrong had a lot of contacts because he'd been working for years and he'd done a lot of theatre and he was pulling in a lot of his friends. So, um, you know, people like Anna Quayle and other people that pop up in this and do little comedy bits, they're all just friends of Michael Armstrong's, basically. So, yeah, he gets a lot of good people to turn up and do funny things. I mean, we've 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 mentioned two of the backers, but there's also um, there's also the guy who wants to make a kung fu musical. Yeah. Starring starring his beautiful girlfriend, who's an opera singer and karate master. Or something kung fu master. And so they start they start making some kind of remake of The Sound of Music. That is an interesting choice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there's a western the western if, uh, bit is that part of the kung fu film i i forget no that's that's the because there are th originally there are three backers um the the pornograph the pornographic version the kung fu musical 
and The Gay Western. Those are those are the three films that they have to make. But then Benny U. Murdoch runs off with all the money. And then to stop themselves going to jail, they get a fourth backer, which is the um, the Festival of, Festival of Light people, because that's his girlfriend's mum. And so she provides she provides the backing for the family version. So they then have to make four films or for the price of one. Yeah, it's easy to lose. It's easy to lose track. <laughs> <laughs> the gay Western is, is uh, yeah, an interesting choice. Um... I mean, that's where from a modern perspective, looking at this film, you could feel very awkward about the kind of gay stereotypes that are being perpetuated in this film i don't know i don't know i mean i think it's just interesting that you know we're acknowledging um that we're making all kinds of sex films and one of them is a gay sex film but mm. it's not really kind of you know we just we don't linger no. on that um I it mean, is it, really stereotyped kind of, it is really it's, quite it's camped up to the max but but again you know the the characters that michael was writing there were all real people <laughs> you know the the backer um that wants the kung fu musical he'd met him before in real life the 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 man the guy who wants his um wants to make the the first british western all these people were real and and michael armstrong you know he he talks a lot in the book i've got the um the screenplay it's a they've published the screenplay for the film and so he talks a lot in there about all these different people that he met but but obviously by yeah by seventy standards it was not uncommon to have um, screaming gay stereotypes in film and television, so this really just fits with you know what was going on and what people would have been used to. Thinking about John Inman in Are You Being Served, yeah. characters like that, like sitcom characters, where the audience yeah. kind of know that the character is gay and they're coded. The reason they're coded in such a camp way is so that the the audience recognizes that they're seeing. A gay character it's kind of like a something that we see from like radio i think going all the way back to like the 40s and 50s the way that these characters are coded yeah i'm sure yeah i mean you only got to listen to something like um oh, what are they called julian and sandy yeah around the horn <laughs> and around the horn with, um, with yeah but this this the depiction in this film fits very much with with what's going on there um and it's I mean, I, it is a sex film, but it's not really... I'm not sure how far it's trying for titillation more than... It kind of has an axe to grind, I think. I mean, I've never, honestly never... Act, I don't think I've ever seen a, a straightforward satire of the British film industry in this kind of detail, um, mm. where you've got characters wandering up and down Wardour Street and walking into the offices of film companies. <laughs> and yeah. You've got um, jokes about the process of, you know, writing and filming and getting funding. It's just so... Yeah, it's it's great. It's I mean, it's almost a film you could show to, to budding film directors and say, this is, I think even now, this is your warning that your dreams, your dreams will be shattered. Oh... <laughs> Well, they will if um, you're working in uh, the 1970s in British cinema, I guess, yeah. in Wardour Street. Um, of course, they end up making four films, which is probably more films than were actually in production in 1974 uh, in any British studio. Yeah. <laughs> um, Adrian, you said you had a connection with this film. So what is your connection with this film? Because we haven't... 
Oh yeah. Well, okay. So I've just I I saw it. I appreciated it uh, for what it was. I don't know how long ago, ten or fifteen years ago. But when I um, about ten years ago, I interviewed the League of Gentlemen. I managed to somehow blag my way into the green room at the BFI when they were doing a thing, and this was around the time that they were doing Psychoville. And so we got talking about Christopher Biggins, and Steve Pemberton mentioned that he'd never seen Eskimo Nell. So I bought him the DVD and posted it to him because I felt like that was a big gap for his, uh, considering how much they are into cult film, those guys, but he'd never seen it. But anyway, a few years later, I actually ended up managing to interview Michael Armstrong for my PhD. Um, I just met him in a cafe in London and we talked for a couple of hours and it was fascinating. And he was telling me stories about producers and about distributors because that was the focus of my PhD. Um, and he know, he'd known the Fancy family who played a big part in what I was writing about, EJ Fancy. Um, and because I couldn't talk, nobody in, the, nobody in the Fancy family wanted to talk to me. So I had to talk to people they'd worked with instead. And so Michael Armstrong gave me some gold. I think my, my very first page of my PhD opens with a quote from Michael Armstrong. Uh, he's so good at giving you sound bites. So, um, so I became friends with him then. And I'd also, I think maybe a couple of years earlier, I'd reviewed Eskimo Nell when it came out on Blu-ray for Cinema Retro magazine. And then about two years ago, I, cause Michael Armstrong started publishing all of his screenplays. And so I bought the Eskimo Nell screenplay. Um, and then when I looked at the back, I discovered that I was quoted in the blurb on the back. They'd actually quoted from my Cinema Retro review. Yeah which was exciting. And then, so I ended up, men I mentioned this on Twitter because I was quite pleased. And then the publisher got in touch with me and then they just, they asked me if I wanted to interview Michael. So I ended up going to his house and having a long chat with him about this screenplay project and about Eskimo Nell and about some of his other films. But yeah, he just, I mean, he's, he, again, he's just talked about how much of it was based on real life people and real life conversations. So much of the dialogue in Eskimo Nell is taken verbatim, either from people that he met or from film textbooks, you know, where he's giving his director pompous things to say about motivation. All that stuff's coming out of textbooks because Michael Armstrong does not have a high opinion of film academics. He doesn't really hold with what film academics teach or what script writing gurus teach. He's always complaining about Robert McKee Mm. No, I mean, I, I'm really, I'm really uh, committed to film academia and analysis, obviously, because that's my job. But mm -hmm. um, the whole, the the author thing, the the script, the, the the script has a the whole, yeah, the McKee thing, the whole this is how story yeah. works. It's just so like arrogant, and yeah, yeah. I, I totally agree with him on that. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just yeah. very prescriptive, isn't it? At least we've succeeded in getting it banned. I'm glad to say disgusting film how the producers could claim it was art i don't know i saw it 11 times in my mind it was filthy uh, what we should be doing is pushing for a bill in parliament to ban everything that can be considered offensive to public models no what i feel would be far more effective is to try and infiltrate more of our members onto committees of official bodies yeah it's a great pity we can't completely take over the board of film censors that way I could personally vet every piece of filth submitted. Uh, we have a very, very special guest today. Uh, we have Professor Sue Harper, 
who is Emeritus Professor at the University of Portsmouth and who has written uh, a number of books on British cinema, uh, but specifically 1970s British cinema. So Sue ran a three-year-long academic funded project which was all about British cinema in the 1970s and that included discussion of stuff like, um, you know, censorship and uh, British film culture and uh, all of that stuff, but included kind of everything about the 70s, like, you know, the sex films, uh, sitcom films, um, you know, James Bond films, just everything that was going on in cinema up to and including kind of avant-garde experimental stuff. So she's uh, she's a great sort of expert to have on that era. There are very few experts, I think, on British cinema of the 70s, simply because it's an era that's often been sort of forgotten about and skimmed over a bit because we kind of think of it as being um, a decade where not, not much went on in the industry, not much happened. Uh, but maybe Sue can talk a little bit about that as a sort of misconception, if you like. Um, so yeah, over to you. And the trouble is, I think it's actually a masterpiece. But of course, it's not a typical 70s sex film, you know. Not no, we were just talking about how untypical it was. And I was just saying how, how rare it was. I mean, I don't think I've ever seen a film that satirizes the film industry directly in this way. No. In such detail and with such right. like, it's kind of quite, um, doesn't hold any punches, does it? <laughs> oh, one of them is supposed to be Tony Tensor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and actually, I think the the uh, scriptwriter actually appears in the film, doesn't he? Yeah. Yes, he's the the he plays the director in the film. Yeah. I just it's just amazingly funny. I I, I must have missed a lot of it when I saw it the fir- first time. I mean, I've written about it, but I hadn't realised how brilliant it was. You know. Um, well, we were just saying how there's a kind of. It's clearly, it's made by film students who've been thwarted, who've gone into the, yeah. the, the British cinema of the 70s, found there's no money unless they want to do something vaguely pornographic, gotten really annoyed and then written a kind of satire where they've just insulted all these backers that they've asked for money. <laughs> <laughs> let, let me just get it, the four, I, that's a, I made a mistake in my book, I think, because I said there were three backers. In fact, there are four, aren't there? There's the... Yeah. the the um the kung fu one the gay cowboy one um which one uh, what's the other one there's a pornographic one yeah and then um those are the original three yeah but then when they lose all the money they end up getting the backing from the festival of light That's to it. make a family film so then there's the fourth one as well <laughs> which is the one that gets the royal premiere yeah the royal um, premiere of a film yeah. that was shot with an inflatable igloo. That's yeah. <laughs> very believable. The first, yeah, with somebody getting a, a whacking, you know, when they're spread eagled over the igloo, you know. It's yeah, brilliant. It's very funny. Yeah, I like the bit best where the guys ask him about genres. I take it as producer your experience in the genre. Oh. You don't need to worry about that. <laughs> we'll have birds with bloody great genres, I can tell you. <laughs> so there's a lot of uh, a, a lot of scores being settled in the film, really. Mm. They really are, yeah. Do you have any idea how much it made, how, how it did at the box office? Oh, well, that's a good question. Let me consult my book. Oh, God, I have no idea. It was kind um, of in the same bracket as, like, Confessions of a Window Cleaner. Yeah, it doesn't say how much money it made in here, but it, it had a full UK release. Mm, which is unusual for a film of that type. It played in 200 cinemas just in London. And I then went, 
went out across the UK. Yeah, but when, it's quite big, yeah. When they were making the film originally, it was just for the small kind of sex cinemas, mm. Um, mm. like the JC on Charing Cross Road and places like that. But once the once people like Roy Kinnear got on board, it suddenly became a much bigger film. Sue, um, I mean, mm. people have this kind of image in their heads of the 70s, like British cinema in the 70s, crappy sex comedies, um, James Bond films, carry-on films maybe. Um, but you, you of course ran this big project on the 1970s and you've written kind of books about it. Yeah. Possibly nobody knows the, the 70s in terms of cinema better than you. So yeah. what do you think about you know, this film in the context of the mid 70s, like what's going on in the British film industry right now? I mean, I think, uh, you know, what's what's crucial is that there was a pushing in this period from the early 70s to about the mid 70s, which is when this is made, sort of pushing against the boundaries of sort of permission. And then there's a sort of withdrawal from um, any kind of revolutionary or uh, controversial work towards the end of the decade you know there's sort of withdrawal from from experimental stuff and I think this is a sort of this film can be seen as sort of apogee really of, of um, ironic disavowal cinema because one of the things that characterizes the 70s is that you know there's there, there is some excess but there's also some films that are ironic or critical of that excess and I think this this falls into that category you know, it's 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 a deeply iconoclastic film in my view because it's critical of the industry. It's also, in a way, critical of sex films as well, and it's critical of overly ambitious uh, uh, film students thinking that they can make films. Dead-eyed Dick and Mexican and Pete arrive in town. The women too knew his playful ways down on the Rio Grande, so forty whores pulled down their drawers at Dead-eyed Dick's command. Now, Dead-Eye Dick was breathing quick with lecherous snorts and grunts as 40 asses were brought to view, to say nothing of 40. I'm in a meeting! Yeah, so it's it's really critical of sex films. Um, yeah. Um, an ironic sex film that's critical of sex films. Uh, so is that why it's so unsexy? Because I don't really, ha yeah, I haven't seen much sexy at all. Era, but it's just, it's just utterly unsexy. <laughs> it's, well, it, it's, it's, it shows the act as being extremely un undignified and absurd, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I mean, that's an actual turn off for, for anybody, you know? So I can't imagine any, I think there might've been some uh, unhappy viewers, you know, <laughs> who've gone expecting the full Eskimo Nell and, and come out being assaulted really, you know? Yeah. I mean, there, but, there's, <clears throat> there's nudity, there's nude scenes, there's scenes with, you know, like vague sort of almost orgies, lots of people in a room having Yeah, but there's bums rather than penises. I mean, there's a lot of dildos, but I don't recall seeing a single uh, real penis in the film. And and the same with, with vaginas, there's tits and arses, but nothing else, you know. Uh, yeah, there's that bit with the clapperboard and the yeah. guy mm -hmm. with his erection, and uh, you can imagine if you... If you but there's a crucial scene there where, she's, where he says, look at this. And the girl, and he sort of obviously unzips and the girl just bursts out laughing. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, the film's about discomfiture yeah. and embarrassment yeah. rather than pleasure. 
No, there's there's very little that's pleasurable about any of the sex that takes place or any of the conversations that they have about sex. Because whenever these uh, the filmmakers go to see the backers and it's it's like tits, we need tits, we need we need mm-hmm. genres, we need we need our as long as it has like lots of ass in it, as long as my girlfriend's naked in it, you know, it's just it's so painfully yeah. unsexy. And the only the only scene that you get at all close to seeing people having sex is the one with between Roy Kinnear and his and his girlfriend, you know, and it, that is gross because you know he keeps mm-hmm. to everybody's muscles. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of double entendres about keeping it up or getting it up, mm-hmm. all of those things. Mm-hmm. I count at least twenty of those in the film. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. what I what I find quite impressive is that he also manages to make some of the jokes that are not double entendres funny. Like there's the kind of compilation towards in like a little montage. And they keep cutting back to the guy saying, Yeah, but what's my motivation for having an erection? What's my motivation for having an erection? You, that's not a carry on joke. No, but it's sort of, he it's sort to make of like it a funny. number of discourses that are mutually exclusive and bring mm. them into sort of confrontation with each other. That's, that's the source of the film's uh, comedy, I think, you know. So, um, Sue, could you tell us a little bit more about what your project involved and how much this area of the film industry really sort of came into it when you were looking at the oh, 70s? It, well, it was, it was about British film culture in the 70s, and that involved some work on television, or rather the relationship between film and television in the period. And we looked at audience taste, we looked at legislation, we looked at international relations in the film industry, we looked at the economics of the industry, but then, we went on to look at the industry, you know, the films themselves in terms of their visual style, in terms of the values which they either criticised or encapsulated, and the patterns as well of, of adaptation, literary adaptation, role of this of the scriptwriter, and so on in the films, and the way in where the directors came from there were some what we call old school directors who was who sort of come up um through the, the sort of 50s and 60s but there were some who were working for the first time um in feature film and we you know we wanted to look at, at, at their work so oh yeah I, I think i said we, we looked at changing patterns of censorship as well so everybody on the project was working on slightly different areas and and then it was it was down to Justin and me as leaders of the project to sort of give some coherence to to the whole the whole sort of enterprise because um, everybody says oh British cinema of the 1970s how terrible that was actually it's not true, true at all it's a very very complex and interesting period full of innovation obviously but also full of full of some clangers and some absolutely dire films so it's, mm. it's very mixed also yeah. we had a lot of um adaptations of sitcoms in this era didn't we Stuff yeah they they i think i don't know if we're thinking in terms of value i mean i i never really am concerned with question whether or not a film is a good film or not but no. what what its cultural <laughs> significance is i mean and i think that's very interestingly placed when you look at those adaptations of the um the the tv sitcoms because without virtue without exception they're all terrible they're terrible but they're very interesting cultural phenomenon a because it was thought appropriate to spend good film money on them and b what they did with the original source material they didn't precisely replicate the tv 
um, the, the TV sitcoms, but they, they did do slightly different things with them. I mean, as I say, without exception, they're all dreadful. That was never done with that degree of intensity before. Mm -hmm. And a lot of critics think that that's a sign of a film culture in, in desperation. I'm not too sure about that myself. Um, I'm sure that I read somewhere that Hammer's <laughs> most financially successful film was on the buses. It's all a question of status, really, isn't it? I yeah. mean, no films like the sex films had absolutely minimal status, but there was an unpredictability about the profit margin. Uh, I mean, low status films, films which had little cultural capital, would often make a great deal of money. Yeah, they were really predictably successful, like the Carry On films. Every they, co they cost about £100,000 each every yeah. year consistently in the top 10 box office like you can predict that that film is going to make mm. money therefore why wouldn't you put this small amount of money into it so it makes you know a couple of million pounds <laughs> mm. but what that does of course is is add to the general financial viability of the medium so it le leaves a bit of cash left over for making the more experimental films yeah absolutely if you're like a big film company with a slate then those films are really valuable aren't they yeah i mean something like ryan's daughter for example cost a phenomenal amount of money to make but you know they, they'd scooped it up elsewhere from the really cheap stuff that was profitable mm -hmm. and it was a question of viring viring profits i think Okay, so I was, uh, one of the things I wanted to do was read out some reviews, but I couldn't find many critical reviews of this from the time. So what I thought I might do is, it's actually on Amazon Prime, this film, to rent for a couple of quid. Uh, and it's been, it's been uh, reviewed on Amazon Prime, and I thought I might read out some of the reviews because uh, it got a very mixed response. Um, and some of the reviews are quite entertaining, and some of them are, are really, really, really complimentary. Uh, so what do you think about that, Adrian? Should yeah. I read Sue. Yeah, go ahead. I have also got a couple of contemporary reviews. We can we can make a comparison. Okay, so um, <clears throat> Martin Clayton said, "Very happy, well done." Uh, Will gave it five stars and said, "Funny, as it says, saucy comedy. Some brilliant tongue-in-cheek performances. Easily the best of its kind." Uh, I think this was the very first DVD I bought on Amazon. So good, I never looked back. Lightning720 says, uh, watchable, uh, gives it five stars. Uh, typical British body sense of humor with some famous stars of TV and the silver screen. Uh, so it's got quite a few positive reviews this, but as we sort of go further down, um, Chris gave it one star, said, wish I hadn't bothered. Uh, oh, um, oh, this is quite a bad one, yeah, it says, uh, Slate Ripper says, rubbish, no good at all. A bad English film, should give it no stars. I put it in the bin, would not even give it away. Oh, so yeah, some yeah, strong so. reaction there. Yeah, uh, so. other, other, other responses are that it, it, puerile and uh, not amusing in any way, uh, which I guess is kind of, I mean, it is quite puerile. Um, I guess we have such a knowledge of, of, of like we, we we recognize all the in-jokes, don't we? <laughs> we recognize all the stuff it's saying about British cinema. Um, that it's, it's kind of funny to me, uh, it's funny to us, but maybe like, I don't know, it's maybe not that entertaining if you, uh, if you were gonna show it now. Um, I don't know, can you imagine this on Netflix? I can't. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a film that needs an introduction. You need to give the audience context and explain why it's funny. Yeah, I think that would definitely help. So I was looking for some contemporary reviews to go with those Amazon reviews. 
Um, and I managed to find a couple. I found one from the Daily Mirror in um, 1975, uh, January. And um, it, the, the headline is Bawdy Awful. And they go on to use a series of puns, um, including the it gets verse by the minute because it's about poetry. It gets verse by the minute. So they did not like it. They called it a limp, depressing and crude comedy. So I don't think um, they got they, the Daily Mirror did not get the joke at all. They did not get the joke. But over in Monthly Film Bulletin, um, I think I, they are very positive, which is quite refreshing considering how they normally review low budget films. Um, what they start off with is uh, they say on the face of it, just another cheap fall on your farce sex exploitation comedy stamped with the familiar British hallmarks of vulgarity, unsubtlety and mistimed slapstick. So that's that's their opening sentence. But then they go on to talk about how great it is, how um, the film targets the very system which sponsors cheap sex exploitation comedies and the Philistines who beget them. And they, uh, you know, they, they mention... <laughs> They mentioned Roy Kinnear talking about movies purely in anatomical terms, like when he, you know, he's talking about big charismas, for example. <laughs> big genres uh, and big charismas. Uh, big charismas, and uh, he points out all the fact, all the cliches of a sex comedy that they avoid, like the innocent male virgin doesn't get deflowered by a soft-hearted philandress, which would perhaps be where you'd think it would go. Um, the prurient members of the Society for Moral Reform don't experience a last real conversion to the joys of sex. So, um, yeah, they, they, he closes by saying, um, the film's infectious air of gleeful vengeance and genuine satirical bite give it, against all the odds, a rare claim as a British comedy of the 70s that is both funny and relevant. I think that's that's pretty good. There are kind of, like, when I was watching the film, I noticed there were, like, little sort of joins between cuts sometimes that that mm -hmm. kind of uh, are just kind of just disjointed there's a kind of sense that maybe this is a person's debut film mm. um but there is a lot that um like because of that if anything it's refreshing because you've got people maybe maybe who've not been working very long in the industry they're quite young but they're also they're not kind of there's not a sense of all those ingrained cliches and um, you know, those people from in the mid 70s who'd been working in film from like the 40s and 50s. And there's mm. just a sense of churn, like churning out the same kinds of genre product. This feels actually quite fresh and different. And it's partly like the reviewer noted, you know, we're not we're not doing those old cliches, you know, mm. uh, the writer doesn't get deflowered. I'm not sure what the penguin thing is. Um, <laughs> but again, that's 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 different. That's that's not yeah. that's not a kind of cliche. That's just weird. Yeah. <laughs> that's just. I um I actually I was walking through Chichester a couple of years ago, and walking towards me quite fast was Christopher Timothy, and I I came so close to shouting out, "I loved you in Eskimo Nell" as he walked past. Are you glad you but didn't, Adrian? I wish I I kind of wish I had, but he looked quite busy, I so I didn't had, want to disturb maybe, him. You may have wished now that you hadn't. <laughs> well, you know, I'm sure he would have appreciated it because everyone else probably wants to just 
talk about all creatures great and small. You know what? If I ever if I ever meet Martin Campbell, I'm not going to say anything about Goldeneye or Casino Royale or Edge of Darkness. Eskimo Nell, Martin mm-hmm. Campbell. I yeah. loved I loved your work. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that what's interesting is to compare it to uh, the Confessions films. Yes. You know, Confessions of a Window Cleaner or something like that, which really, they were sex films. Uh, and, and they did clean up at the box office in a major way. But the humour is much broader mm. than this, you know. And, and But actually, the, the message is not dissimilar, which is that it's okay to have pleasure, you know. Ridiculous though it might look, it doesn't feel ridiculous at the time. <laughs> <clears throat> and, you know, it's very to compare the two the two types of film the kind of i must have seen a confessions film at some point i must have done i remember i have vague memories of robin asquith losing his trousers mm. like multiple times mm. i was kind of um like a bit cagey about what like not cagey but um i want i was interested in my response to it from you know present day perspective watching the sex film from the mid 70s because i just thought it's going to be so horrendously misogynistic isn't it it's going to be so sexist it's going to be just a reminder of how horribly sexist everything was but actually i didn't really get that much of that from it at all not at all not at all i mean what i found about about it was that the women had a far stronger sense of the ridiculous in yeah. the film. they were playing it broadly and actually mm. if anybody had had the upper hand in the film it was the women because yeah. they knew what they were doing, they were getting paid, they were manipulating everybody, you know? Mm-hmm. That was the interesting thing. It was the men who looked silly, not the women. Yeah, and it's, whenever there's a sort of um, joke, a, a sex scene played for laughs, it's always a guy who's looking really undignified and ridiculous. Yeah. It's always a woman who's laughing at him or, yeah. or saying, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and the Kung Fu Soprano is just brilliant, you know? Mm. Oh, God, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Such a weird film. There's that scene with the guy whose trousers are so tight. It's the Western one. And yeah. it's so tight. Every time he gets off his horse, they rip. And then there's just like a pile of 60 pairs of really tight trousers until they find one that, that's tight, but not too tight. Yeah. <laughs> Eskimo Nell, scene 82, take two. Action. Hello, cowboy. Okay, Nell, now I knows it was you put Pete and me inside. Cut, cut. Oh, shit, I told you they were too bloody tight. But yeah, there's, there's not there's not a sense of like creepy, like there should be a sense of creepy sexism about it, but I'm just there like, they didn't get any sense of that at all. No, and wasn't, wasn't Mary Millington in it? Yeah, for about five seconds. Yeah, yes, she can, well, that's she, interesting, isn't it? That's a little. Go on. I was going to say she's the 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 um, stripping um, traffic warden. Mm. And it's and all that's played. a sort of gesture. Yeah. Yeah, it's a gesture towards other kinds of sex films because she was kind of quite wholesome, you know, wasn't she? Um, in a way, mm. uh, lived on the Isle of Wight. <laughs> yeah, this is before she was an before she was a name. I think it's before she'd even changed her name to Mary Millington because oh, that wasn't yeah. her real name. So she wasn't really that famous at this point. But she was making, mm-hmm. as we were discussing before about hardcore porn, she oh, yeah. was already involved in that. I think by this point, um, mm. 
but uh, she wasn't a mainstream name like she became mm. a few years later. But yeah, she is in it mm. briefly. But they they speed it up. It's played like a silent comedy sequence yeah. for laughs. But I mean, going back to the the question of feeling, you know, uh, that it was sort of sexist or exploitative. I mean, I didn't feel that at all. I mean, I I would do it obviously in a, in a hardcore film, uh, but this is just you know it's not offensive in, in any way in fact to me I thought it was quite um positive from a female point of view you know that you know <laughs> after all she's the one with the whip you know as Patsy mm. said in absolutely fabulous you know <laughs> yeah I I was because there's always a sense of like a simmering kind of annoyance when you watch stuff like from a certain mm. era isn't there like you can't not you can't if you're a woman watching something from the 60s where it's quite clearly framed exploitatively like mm. there's a sense of okay so you there's a lot that you have to accept yeah. <laughs> from, from older film culture um, yeah. if, you're, if you're able to if you're you know if you're going to engage with it you have you have to have this kind of acceptable level of this is the shit that happened <laughs> mm. uh, whereas with this film i thought yeah i'd have to have that i'd have that hum in my head but i just didn't because again like you say sue it's just it's just the way that it's framed and the the fact that the the female characters seem to have like more of more of a sense of dignity and power and mm. people who are the people who are being lampooned here are the british establishment like the british film mm. industry um which is you know almost entirely comprised of male producers yes <laughs> directors mm-hmm. and the women know what they're doing when the men don't you know that's the thing mm. uh, and i think that's that's an interesting aspect of the film so yeah, I wasn't expecting uh, the 1975 sex film to have a positive reinforcing message about <laughs> <laughs> But hey, here we are. <laughs> Good. Well, I'm glad because I was worried about that. I was worried about what the reaction might be. So I'm glad that it yeah. turns out to be okay. It's not really, I watched like Cool It Carol was horrible. Uh, you know, mm. Cool It Carol from 1970. Yeah. Or there's, I mean, that's just like a kind of more exploit, oh, exploitation-y uh, sex film where, you know, this boy and girl go off to London and she ends up like being a prostitute to pay for his, uh, you know, to pay for their lifestyle. It's kind of just really grim. Um, but there's there's overtones of that in a lot of sex films from this era, but not not this one, really. Yeah. Um, it's like, it's a parody of exploitation films is what it is, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of a criticism of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, Sue, is there anything else that you'd like to add? Any final thoughts? Uh, well, it's just I, th- I think it shows how sort of rich and complex the field of of sex films is in the seventies, and you know this is the one of the you know the furthest edge. Of, of, of a film which sort of challenges the convention and uses all sorts of different resources to get not only at the film establishment, the, the producing establishment, but also at the academic and critical establishment as well. Um, so I, I think it's, it's a very interesting film that does a lot of different things and fulfills a lot of different functions. And, um, you know, the production values are not great, but it's funny enough not to matter. So, and, and I think it, it, it casts a very interesting light on production patterns throughout the decade, really. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't miss it for the world. I, I think it has to have a role in any account, any broader account that you give of, of the period, mm. certainly. I agree. Yeah. Thanks very much, Sue. Yeah, thank you. Is that it? That's easy. 
It's <laughs> <laughs> really interesting. I, Thank you. Oh, the other thing, the, the other thing, um, the quotes, the cinematic quotes in it are interesting. You know, the blonde woman who's the girlfriend of the American producer, well, yeah. she is a takeoff of um, Gene Hagen, the Gene Hagen character in um, uh, Singing in the Rain. Oh, wow. Yeah, the I guess whole... trying to place her as well. Yes. Um, I can't stand them. Oh, God. <laughs> and she's actually taking off that very naive and, and, and sort of stupid, but at the same time, quite canny American star. I mean, it's full of cinematic references like that. And of course, the reference to Nanook of the North and so on. I mean, you, you, if you were to pick out the cinematic references, it's extremely Catholic with a small C. You know, very broad range of cinematic references in the film. It's also um, a clock, the bit about Doctor Zhivago they talk about a lot. Like we'll have we'll have shots of white, wide mm. panoramas of white, just so much <laughs> white. <laughs> like Doctor Zhivago is the classiest film ever, and yeah. yeah. <laughs> but what's interesting is he's also, of course, the, the director's done a, a, a he's done a, a course on documentary, and in the film of Nanook of the North, one of the things I always remember is that there's, there's, a, there's a scene where Nanook has obviously got two, if not three wives, and you, sh you, sh you see them all sort of, you know, snuggling up in their igloo, uh, but nobody ever says anything about the fact that he's got two wives. It's the big silence in the documentary film, but of course that's, it's exactly that gap which the film sort of exploits and knows about. That The person who's written the film knows about Nanook of the North. And is is sensible enough to sort of inscribe that into the body of the film itself. So I thought that was interesting. I think we're coming to a sort of natural end point now. Uh, I'd like to thank you all for listening. I'd like to thank our guest Sue Harper for kindly. Uh, giving her time and for watching Eskimonel and considering it to be a masterpiece which is like you know fantastic <laughs> um, really underappreciated film that we've got to kind of take out of we've got to kind of dust it off and got to like really kind of consider it for what it is which is actually a really clever uh, funny sort of pastiche of the British film industry I'd like to thank my co-host Adrian Smith as well for his insights and his great uh, Michael Armstrong stories <laughs> Uh, you can you can find us on all sorts of platforms. You can um, you can uh, find us on Twitter, and you can um, like and subscribe to the podcast. And if you look at our show notes, we've got a bunch of kind of links and things for you to go off and watch and read if you're interested in learning more about Eskimonel. And also, there are sort of links uh, to places where you can watch the film, which would be sort of really helpful. Oh yeah, I should also mention it is available on Blu-ray uh, from Eighty Eight Films, and a very nice edition with a commentary track from Michael Armstrong with the sex film historian Simon Sheridan. So that's highly recommended. Yeah, I'm really are. interested in that commentary, actually. I've heard it's yeah. really good. It's funny. Right, thank, thanks, everybody. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we nailed it. We, we totally nailed it. We nailed that ending. <laughs>